Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Debbie Thomas. My essay this week is entitled True Religion. It's based upon the lectionary readings for August 29th, 2021. My husband and I just spent two weeks in Greece, visiting some of the ancient sacred sites we've always wanted to see. We stood on the Areopagus, the hilltop where St. Paul preached his famous sermon. We toured the mammoth ruins of the Acropolis, walked the sacred way in Delphi, explored what remains of the sanctuary of Asclepius in Epidaurus, and admired the gorgeous icons, frescoes, and illuminated manuscripts now housed at the Byzantine and Christian Museum in Athens. It was impossible to immerse ourselves in this rich and colorful history without noting how persistent, fervent, and complicated humanity's pursuit of the sacred has always been. In the name of the divine, we have created some of the most breathtaking art, architecture, literature, liturgy, ritual, and rite imaginable. We've healed, housed, fed, loved, and served each other. Also in the name of the divine, we have impoverished, tortured, colonized, enslaved, and decimated each other. We've murdered each other's children, forced non-believers to choose between conversion and death, and burned each other's houses of worship to the ground. In short, our relentless desire to seek, serve, appease, or placate the sacred has never been a a benign thing. Religion has always had the power to elevate us or ruin us, to make us compassionate and creative or stingy and small-minded, to grant us peace or stir us to war. If our past teaches us anything, it is that we dare not treat our pursuit of God casually. The stakes are too high. What we profess and practice when it comes to religion really, really matters. In our Gospel reading this week, Jesus confronts a group of Pharisees who accuses his disciples of getting religion wrong. Specifically, the Pharisees ask why some of Jesus' followers eat their meals with defiled hands. That is, why they eat without performing the ritual hand-washing expected of observant Jewish people before meals. To our contemporary ears, the accusation might sound trivial. But the Pharisees ask an important question, a question that gets to the heart of what authentic religion is. Consider their context. The first century Jewish people among whom Jesus ministers is an oppressed minority living in an occupied land. How are they to keep their faith viable against a backdrop of colonization? In the midst of religious and cultural diversity, how should they maintain their identity, their integrity, their heritage? The Pharisees' solution to the problem is to contain and codify the sacred. How can God's people best practice their religion among the surrounding pagans? They can create and maintain a purity culture, a culture that clearly delineates who is in and who is out, who is clean and who is unclean, who deserves God's favor and who doesn't. They can practice the ancient rituals of their elders down to the last letter, as if tradition itself is the gateway to holiness. They can wash their hands before every meal, refuse table fellowship with tax collectors, prostitutes, and other morally compromised sinners, and set themselves apart in everyday life as God's righteous and holy people. This is religion as fence-building, religion as separation, religion as institution for institution's sake. And Jesus, never one to mince words, calls it what it is. Quoting the prophet Isaiah, he rebukes the Pharisees, saying, This people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching human precepts as doctrines. It's important to note that Jesus doesn't condemn ritual hand-washing in this story. 
He doesn't argue that all religious traditions are evil. What he indicts is the legalism, self-righteousness, and exclusivism that keeps the Pharisees from freely loving God and loving their neighbors. What he calls out is their elevation of right over mercy, heritage over hospitality, ritual over compassion. What he grieves is the Pharisees' compulsive need to police the boundaries of their religion, based on their own narrow definitions of purity and piety. Again, it's easy for us to look down on the moral rigidity of the Pharisees as if we in our enlightened modernity would never make such mistakes. But honestly, are we any different? Don't we sometimes behave as if we're finished products, with nothing new to discover about the Holy Spirit's movements in the world? Don't we cling to spiritual traditions and practices that long ago ceased to be life-giving, simply because we can't bear to change the way we've always done things? Don't we set up religious litmus tests for each other and decide who's in and who's out based on conditions that have nothing to do with Jesus' open-hearted love and hospitality? Don't we fixate on the forms of piety we can put on display for others to applaud instead of cultivating the secret and hidden life of God deep within our souls? Don't we allow our cherished rituals to ossify, not noticing that our hearts too are becoming rigid and fixed, complacent and cold? As we engage in the business of church hopping, church going, and church building, don't we sometimes forget that true religion includes and welcomes, blesses, and builds bridges? Don't we skirt around the basic truth that authentic religion is love of God and love of neighbor? It doesn't matter what specific forms our legalism takes. In some churches, it centers around liturgy or preaching styles. In others, it comes down to deifying one genre of music over another. In still others, it means policing the political affiliations and allegiances of parishioners. In some faith communities, the lines in the sand have to do with women clergy or gay marriage or racial justice or economic equality. The guises vary, but in the end, legalism in any guise deadens us towards God and towards our neighbors. It freezes us in time, making us irrelevant to the generations that come after us. It makes us stingy and small-minded, cowardly and anxious. It strips away our joy and robs us of peace. It causes us, in Jesus' chilling words, to honor God with our lips, but to worship Him in vain. So what can we do? How can we discern whether our way of doing religion is life-giving or not? Jesus gives His listeners this advice. Notice what comes out of you. Notice what fruit your adherence to tradition bears. Does your version of holiness lead to hospitality? to inclusion, to freedom? Does it cause your heart to open wide with compassion? Does it lead other people to feel loved and welcomed at God's table? Does it make you brave, creative, and joyful? Does it ready your mind and body for a God who is always doing something fresh and new? Does it facilitate another step forward in your spiritual evolution? Or does it make you small and stingy inside, fearful, suspicious, withholding, and bored? Like everything else Jesus offers us, his confrontation with the Pharisees is an invitation. It's an invitation to consider what is really sacred and inviolable in our spiritual lives. It's an invitation to go deeper, past lip service, past tradition, past purity, past piety. It's an invitation to practice what this week's epistle calls pure religion, a religion of love for the widow, the orphan, the stranger, the outcast, and the enemy. A religion of faith in a surprising, innovating, and ever-creative God the God of heritage and history, yes, but also the God of an ever-living, ever-changing now. For books this week, Dan reviews Marilyn Robinson's Jack, a novel. 
Marilyn Robinson's latest novel continues her series of four books about several families from the fictional town of Gilead, Iowa, in post-World War II America. Jack was preceded by Gilead in 2004, which won a Pulitzer Prize and was named the number one fiction book of 2004 by the New York Times, Home, and Lila. The story explores a subplot that appeared in Home when, without explanation, the black sheep of the family, Jack Boughton, returned home after a 20-year absence. Jack is 43, an admittedly confirmed inveterate bum, an alcoholic, a petty thief who has spent time in prison, a miscreant who fathered a child out of wedlock, and, worst of all for his loving father, a decided non-believer. But what happens to Jack when he falls in love with the beautiful Della Miles? In some ways, they are similar. They are both the children of pastors, Presbyterian and Methodist, and they share a love of poetry. Both of them are also working through how to relate to their respective families. On the other hand, they are radically different. Della is eminently respectable and responsible. She's a high school English teacher, a sort of goody-two-shoes. She describes herself as having been a perfect Christian lady her entire life, which life she intends to continue. She comes from what Jack calls the most respectable family on this round earth. She is also, quote, colored, the jarring anachronism that Robinson uses from this period 70 years ago. Jack and Della's love is not just transgressive, it was also illegal for their time and place. Their romance allows Robinson to explore the themes of race, class, family, and religion. Jack remains haunted by his father's love, whereas Della feels smothered by hers. There's even a suggestion of inner rage in her, even though she professes every intention of fidelity to her faith and family. When her family meets the prodigal Jack, their perfect Christianity is revealed as very imperfect. Can this love survive so many complexities? On the last page, Jack savors the irony, quote, This was his grandest larceny by far, this sly theft of happiness from the very clutches of prohibition. In Pauline language, it is nothing less than grace abounding to the chief of sinners. For films this week, Dan reviews Human Nature. If you've never heard of the gene editing tool called CRISPR, or you have heard of it and wondered what the fuss is all about, I strongly encourage you to watch this excellent documentary film on Netflix. When the prestigious journal Science published an article by the Berkeley biochemist Jennifer Doudna about CRISPR back on June 27, 2012, the scientific community took note. CRISPR was a new tool that enabled scientists to edit the DNA of plants and animals. Many people have compared it to the delete and replace function in Microsoft Word. It's no exaggeration to say that CRISPR is one of the most revolutionary developments in the entire history of biology. And as many people predicted, Doudna and her colleague Emmanuel Charpentier eventually shared the Nobel Prize for their pioneering work. <clears throat> Furthermore, CRISPR is not only simple, fast, and cheap, it is an incredibly powerful tool that can be used for both good and ill from preventing or curing dreadful diseases like sickle cell anemia to making enhanced designer babies. In the film, Doudna shares her infamous OMG moment when, soon after discovering CRISPR, she had a nightmare in which a famous scientist came to her and said, I have somebody very powerful with me who I want you to meet, and I want you to explain to him how this amazing technology functions. So I said, sure, who is it? It was Adolf Hitler wearing a pig's face. The movie is a bit dated in one important regard that is mentioned at the very end. 
On November 25, 2018, a bombshell of a story broke about how a rogue Chinese scientist named He Jian Kui had used CRISPR to edit the DNA of two human embryos, which about a month earlier in October had resulted in the birth of non-identical twin girls. These twins were the first gene-edited humans that we know of. And since this was what is called germline editing, the changes that were made to the DNA of the twins could be passed on to their descendants. The consensus of the international science community to the Jian Kui story was immediate and nearly unanimous. For Hank Greeley, a professor of law and director of the Stanford Study for Law and Biosciences at Stanford University, the development was a cross between bad fiction and reckless fiasco. It was grossly reckless, irresponsible, immoral, and illegal. When Doudna learned about He's experiment, she says that she was horrified. Quote, I felt kind of physically sick. Francis Collins, director of the NIH, described it as profoundly disturbing. A joint statement of 122 Chinese scientists called it madness. In fact, on December 30, 2019, the Chinese government tried Jan Kui and sentenced him and two colleagues to three years in jail. It also fined him $430,000. No one knows where Jan Kui is now, nor have scientists heard from him since. For poems this week, Wendell Berry's questionnaire from his book, Leavings of 2010. One, how much poison are you willing to eat for the success of the free market and global trade? Please name your preferred poisons. Two, for the sake of goodness, how much evil are you willing to do? Fill in the following blanks with the names of your favorite evils and acts of hatred. Three, what sacrifices are you prepared to make for culture and civilization? Please list the monuments, shrines, and works of art you would most willingly destroy. 4. In the name of patriotism and the flag, how much of our beloved land are you willing to desecrate? List in the following spaces the mountains, rivers, towns, farms you could most readily do without. 5. State briefly the ideas, ideals or hopes, the energy sources, the kinds of security for which you would kill a child. Name, please, the children whom you would be willing to kill. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for August 29th, 2021. I'm Debbie Thomas.